What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm here with my good friend, Richard Harris, and also good friend and recent resident of Jacksonville, Florida, I believe. You're in Jacksonville? Yes. Nikki I'm in Jacksonville. Welcome Hi. to the show, Nikki. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Nikki is a brand new SDR at M-Train, but she is a Got a lot of, lot of sales experience, multiple roles, multiple industries, big voice and advocate on LinkedIn. And she's also the co-founder of SDR Defenders. So we'll get into her background and what she's doing right now and, and all that exciting stuff. So, Which will be good because I'm, I'm interested in asking Nikki about data and her role in data as it relates to SDR Defenders and just her role in general. Since our sponsor is Lead411, which... Um, provides relevant data, um, whether it's uh, direct cell phone numbers, but also intent data. And I'm curious as to how SDRs in general like to use intent data, if it's worthwhile at this point, um, in terms of the scale of what an SDR's job is. But anyway, if you're looking for for uh, better data and uh, intent data, please check out our sponsor, Lead411. So, Nikki, um, it's been a while since I've talked to you, I, it, I, I, but I'm super excited. Um, what you just moved to Jacksonville, what's going on? Like what's happening? I will tell you all the things I have been in Jacksonville for a year, almost to the day. Okay. Yeah. I moved here for really sort of simple reasons. My, <laughs> my husband is the person who had not seen the ocean until well into adulthood until after we met and upon seeing it decided at some point in his life, he needed to live near it. So, um, Last April, I started working from home and we weren't tied to Austin at all. And it was just time to, you know, do something to make him happy. And I like the ocean too. His best friend lives out here. And, and so, yeah, the, the, the freedom of, of remote work is, is what got me to live in closer to the ocean and closer to my mom. So here we are. Nice. Cool. Well, what, Talk to us a little bit about like, where did Nikki come from in her sales career? Was this something you were always interested in or are you uh, competitive? Do you play sports? Did you have side businesses growing up? Like where did your interest in sales start? It, it started more as an interest in communication and at a very young age being just tuning into what kind of doors that can open. So um, I was born in Dayton, Ohio. I was born in the, the Hilltop Housing Project of Dayton, Ohio. Shout out to Hilltop. And um, when I would go to school, there weren't, the teachers weren't very diverse. And neither was a lot of the, the administration at the school. But there was this one teacher, my kindergarten teacher, Miss Simpson. And people far senior to her in title would be engaged with her, respond to her, and take her very seriously based on her ability to communicate effectively. And I just remember seeing that and being like, wow, I want that. I want people to pay attention when I speak and I want them to do what I say. <laughs> I, I hadn't yet figured out that, oh, oh, you can use this tool for good. But anyway, um, <laughs> so, so my, <laughs> my eyes were open to the, the power of communication, hadn't figured out what that meant for my life or career yet. So I was, was originally going to be a teacher. All of my student teaching job, I mean, yeah, all of my um, work study jobs and things I did while I was in school had to do with education um, because I thought that was where you know, effective communication can make the biggest impact. And like I said, I was so tied to the impact that it had on me with, while I was in school. Um, but sales fell in my lap like it does most people, right? So I went on to a car lot with a friend of mine who was looking to buy a vehicle. It's just a used car lot down in Hinesville, Georgia. Hinesville, if you're from there. And so I was out in Hinesville. At the, at the, at the, so I know all about Hinesville, Georgia. Oh, yeah, you know about Hinesville. Yeah, I went to Bradwell Institute. Shout out to the, the low country, the empire of the South, they call it. Anyway, so I, I walked into this car dealership with this young lady who's a friend of mine. The car salesman is doing the thing, right? This sort of schmoozy thing. There's a veneer. It's obnoxious, so I heckle him. And I, I just was trying to get him to break character. I wanted so to how shake did you heckle him. him. I want to hear about how you heckle. What did you say? Do you remember? 
I don't remember exactly what I said. I just remember that when he was trying to do the like person thing with her and she was gonna go for it. I was like, I'm sorry. Right. Like, can we just be people real quick? And he just kept like saying no. He kept like rejecting that. And like, he would acknowledge me, but then go back to her and be like, well, we have financing options. And it was just too much. So she did not end up living with a car. I, however, left with a job offer. That guy's boss was like, Hey, uh, I like your style kid. You got something. Um, and so I, I sold, that was me beginning my, my sales career. And I, I learned two things very quickly that it's not all about communication, right? That won't get you to the next step. Like it's hard to make money just off of the communication skills. Like you've got to figure out strategy and process. And they just weren't teaching that at the budget car lot at in, in Hansville, Georgia. Um, and so that's when I, you know, found that I was, and, and I also learned like what parts of selling, what parts of a sales role made me feel good about myself and what parts didn't. What, so what are those parts? What are the parts that make you feel good? Helping people. And I know that you're not supposed to say that as a salesperson, right? I'm supposed to be a shark or something, but no, I, I remember very vividly the very first car that I sold. Uh, this young woman had, if you said, you know, Hinesville, you know that it's adjacent to uh, Fort Stewart army base. And this was during a time when uh, most of the soldiers for the infantrymen from that base were deployed in Iraq. And so you had a lot of um, women who were effectively single moms at this point. So this young woman had walked onto the car lot, pushing a stroller in the blazing hot Georgia sun and just needed something, right? But she didn't have like the documentation that she would have needed for financing. She didn't have a lot of stuff. She just needed help. And I implored the leader, I had to do some internal selling and be like, look, what can we do for this young woman? What do we need to figure out, right? Because she came to us for help to, to make some kind of an impact. Don't talk to me about, you know, the profit we can make on this car or that. Like, don't, I'm not here for it. What can we do for her? And we ended up being able to make it so that she left with a car that day. And I was hooked. I was like, oh, so if I take this ability to communicate and I take this inclination toward doing good and I put them together, oh, that's sales. Oh, okay. I can, I can do this. Um, and so I, I did learn that, but then there were obviously some really unsavory things, um, maybe not only to do with sales, but certainly to do with that type of sale um, that I didn't ever want to be a part of. I never want, I knew I never wanted to be a part of taking advantage of. I used to get told by my, my boss at that dealership, um, you got to look at these ups, right? Walk ups. You got to look at these ups when they come on a lot. Like that's that new purse you want. Like that's your rent payment. So he's asking me to see people as dollar signs. And I still see that and hear that happening in sales today, but I knew then it wasn't for me. Do you love going and buying a car now? Like without <laughs> telling people like that, you know, the game, right? I do. I use it. I use this skill more often in uh, negotiating upgrades in my cell phone contract than I do for cars. But yes, but yes, I'm quick to tell people like I can feel you trying to handle me and I don't like to be handled. So let's just be people, okay? Um, and that typically that works. We may have to have you back one day to teach people what, about the quads, like when they brought, they bring out the sheet of paper and they oh, draw the four the square, the four square, the four yeah. Squares, right? I know it's a longer process, but we should probably have you do that. Um, it's a lot of fun, and I remember conversation. All of it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let Scott sort of jump in and, and ask. Well, that's, now that that's the that's the joy, some of the joy at least of of sales, mm -hmm. right? But what about the back? What about the downside? What about the pain of it all? I mean, what are some of the what are some of the areas that have been, you know, difficult for for you as you've gone about your sales and marketing and SDR, you know, career? And I know I know you're I know you're open about <clears throat> some of these things, uh, as is Richard. So you know, I, I want to get into yeah. some of that, you know, roller coaster stuff and how how yeah. we deal with all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. So a lot of it was, sorry, I was a teen mom. We have to go way, way back to like unpack Nikki. Uh, so, so I think that a lot of my, my, the ups and downs I have experienced over a sales career and a lot of the pain and negative, negativity that you're talking about, um, I first take responsibility for the fact that I was really, really late 
to attending to my mental health, like in even the most basic ways. The way that being a teen mom changes you and the way that the, the world shifts in how it sees and engages with you is profound. No one should ignore that. But I didn't feel like I had time and maybe I didn't feel like I was worth attending to these things at that time. So, it, so what, it, what are those shifts though? Like, because I think, look, I'm a white guy. I don't know what it's like to be a teen mom. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. I, I certainly don't know what it's like to be an African-American teen mom, which I'm sure has a whole other level of complexity to it. Mm -hmm. so let other people know, because I've been talking about this for a while now that, you know, stop asking for college degrees all the time. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I know you do have a college degree, um, mm -hmm. but you know, there are plenty of people who for no, for just the way the world worked out for them, you know, sales is the perfect career for them because they got something to fight for besides just themselves. And I talk a lot about whether it's single mothers or, you know, uh, one income parent, uh, one income households, even if you have two parents. And so what is the world? How does the world start to see you so that we can all try to be better at not yeah. seeing yeah. you that way? Well, just that you should accept and expect that your choices are now very limited. Your opportunities are now very limited and you don't have a right to fight against that. You don't have a right to ask for more because you should have kept your legs closed for lack of a better phrase. That is how I started to be treated right away upon becoming a teen mom. I was also, before becoming a teen mom, the chairperson of the teen abstinence ministry at my church. And it was, so, so that is one of the reasons why that shift in the way the world treated me was so profound is because the world was treating me like the exact yeah. opposite before that. Oh, that's a, that's a, it's a 180 in a lot of people's, you know, in a lot of people's minds. And, and so the folks at the church didn't really want anything to do with me anymore. I was this big like blemish that they were staring at failure when they looked at me. It didn't work. The true love weights pledge didn't work. Uh, and and so that, that works its way into your, you know, subconscious and erodes. Exactly that erodes confidence and self-esteem and right. self-advocacy, right? And it's why I found myself self when I was in retail sales and car sales, why I stayed in these environments for so long, because I thought that that's what I deserved. The reason why I left that first dealership that I described to you all, I wish I could say that it was just because I decided to go back to school. That was only one part of it. I, there was a leader there who I thought, was wanting to help me. And so he calls me into his office one day and he's like, um, you know, I had, I was going through a really deep depression, but I didn't know what to name it at the time. And so I was about 20 pounds heavier than I've ever been in my whole life. And I was poor, so I couldn't afford to buy clothes that fit. So this guy who I thought was being super nice to me was like, here's my credit card on your lunch break go, you know, get some clothes that fit. I know that, you know, folks were kind of snicker. My, like my zipper was like, busting out the seams in the back. It was so, it was like the worst time. But anyway, so he's like, you can, you know, I, I want to help you go do this. And so I go and I get the clothes and I start feeling good about myself and I start selling and it's all working out. But then it did, it came with the price. And while I had just was not interested in paying that price, other folks at the dealership, had started basically like bullying me about it because they, they could see that he was had some kind of inappropriate interest. And so it just was just this really ugly thing. And, and I, I, I ended up leaving, but I didn't tell my family why I left. And so I had a lot of disappointment from them. This happens to, has happened to me a, a few times since, right? Where I left for reasons that were perfectly like made sense. I had no choice, but I don't, I protect other folks. So anyway, all of that happened. I'm exposed to all of that in, in a sales environment. And it has everything to do with where I was coming from in my background, having been a teen mother, everything to do with unattended to mental health uh, issues. And I, I managed within that to overcome. And I mean it, uh, to beat odds, right? So teen mothers of color graduate college. I think there's less than 1% of us do that by the age of 30. I was 28. And I did that with all of this baggage. I ended what, up going, huh? I was going to say just what, what shifted from this 
what's shifted in your approach and in your mindset from, um, and I, forgive me if I'm putting words in, sure. in your mouth, like from this place of, I'm gonna allow these people to have these assumptions and, and treat me a particular way to no more like, I know who I am, I know what I'm worth, self-advocacy, you know, you know, you know what I'm getting at? Like, and I you, know what you're getting you made, at. You made that, you made that shift. And I think people are always trying to look for this. What was the moment or what was the, the magic thing? And I, I doubt that there was like a magic moment, but you know, I, and I asked the question because I think so many people go through similar things and everybody's searching for mm -hmm. an answer. And so I think maybe mm -hmm. it's helpful to hear okay. what, what brought that about in you. I think if I had to pinpoint one thing, I'd say accomplishment. So it really, once I had started to do things like complete college and, and like really in one classroom at a time, right? I started to have those experiences when I'm in college classrooms and we're discussing these important issues and I'm sitting next to people who, you know, their background means that I should never get to be equal to them, right? Um, my success and achievement should have been mitigated, but here I am. Like I started to let that mean something to me and I was a great student and started to have people in my life who believed in me outside of just my mom. Right. Um, and, and I, I just let that mean something to me little by little, but to be honest, there really wasn't a big shift until relatively recently. I'd say that a, a lot of what folks would look at in my background uh, or in my experience as success has really just been survival. I've been doing what I have to do and not really having the time to stop and think about how I got here or why I'm successful, like I said, until very recently. And, and then I got to start to be really intentional about it and that's when I really turned the corner. Um, and that is due to, it's gonna sound really corny guys, but having love in my life having people who stick with me versus giving up. Is that, is that people in the sense of like this small, intimate, familial, close friend circle or people more in the sense of like this group of people who love me is growing. Mm. I'm intentionally kind of growing it and intentionally surrounding myself with more people who influence me in a positive, loving way. Um, well, first of all, you're one of those people, Scott. Um, and it's, 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 yeah, it's, it is, it's both, right? So it started out with my relationship with my husband, right? I've, I married my high school sweetheart. I left that part out. Forget about it. But anyway, I married my high school sweetheart and that didn't work out and he didn't turn out to be so sweet, but, but I felt very given up on, right? I felt like there were things I knew I could do and be that I was gonna do and be, and he just wasn't seeing it. And so feeling like, you know, you're not worth someone investing the time um, can have a really terrible effect on how you feel about yourself. And then by contrast with my husband who will be married 15 years in September, um, I was throwing everything but the kitchen sink at this dude in terms of like, as you can imagine, all right, I've told you guys all my baggage. I'm an open book, right? But in terms of like every single insecurity and then I'm a little depressed and then I'm a little neurotic and then I got like all these kids, like it was a lot. And at no point did this person conclude that I was not worth the work that it takes to be um, supportive of me. And once I saw that like that exists, and started to let myself believe that contrary to what my church when I was a kid and you know the a lot of people around me were telling me I do deserve this I am worth that and yeah. so if we cut to you know my interview with Scott for Outbound Engine which was my first B2B sales job and him getting you getting down to the nitty-gritty about like but why are you here though but what do you want to do though and I remember it very vividly I cried and I said, I don't want to have to tell my kids no when they ask me for a 50 cent McDonald's ice cream cone anymore, because that was a very real experience that I had had um, just before that interview. And, you know, you heard me 
And, and I, I don't mean to make it about you. I do this a lot on podcasts, but you're a part of my story. But anyway, so, so you heard me and were very patient and you showed me care in a way that I had not, I didn't think existed when it, in a professional environment. Yeah, I think that's, and, that's interesting because the, um, the way that you describe your relationship with your husband, husband now and, and previous husband in relationship, it mirrors, I think, the way a lot of people feel about their boss or their employer, right? And like much. Sometimes when, when people go to a new company or find a new boss that treats them completely different. It's very eye-opening. It's like, whoa, wow, there's this whole other world out here I didn't know, mm -hmm. you know, existed. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So once, once, once I got wind of the fact that I am in fact worth the trouble, I am, I think about it like, um, this is going to be like, a, I don't know, you'll get this analogy or you won't, but you know how Jerry Jones likes the tough cases for the Cowboys, right? I'm a Cowboys fan. <laughs> Hate me if you want to, but you know how, like, he's not afraid of it. Like he see Terrell Owens is out here doing it. And I don't care what y'all got to say about like whatever issues he has. I'm willing to see what will happen if we invest care and time and patience into this person. And so I identify with those stories. I'm not a cancer in the locker room, but, <laughs> but I think that, that if, you, if you look at sort of some of the surface level indicators, right, it, it could be pretty easy for some folks to conclude that I might not be worth the trouble, right? Like, oh, you know, she was only at this job for this amount of months or blah, blah, blah. But folks paying attention are reaping those benefits. So I want to I want to jump in. You used a really important word, and I think you described it, but I, I just want to repeat it for people. Uh, and, and maybe there's a, a deeper description is you talked about being intentional with yourself, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like really, I need to whether it's own your bullshit or do self care or whatever those things were when, when you use that phrase intentional, what did that mean for you? Because I'm, I'm hoping people are listening going. I could be intentional. I want to be more intentional with me. Specific to my, my mental health, I think is how I used it when I said being intentional about attending to that, is I knew that I was having too many, you know, days in a row where getting out of bed was a labor. And I knew that I was having too many days in a row where my you know negative stories i was telling myself the negative self-talk was spiraling you know in into stuff that was really dark but i let that go on for years thinking you know i'll just i'll get over it i'll i'll see what i can finesse as far as getting more days off and you know if they don't and i'll, I'll survive at this job until they find me out and you know i'm out of days off and then it just and then at a certain point i just had to say like look this is an opportunity I want. I know that I can produce these results. I've just got too much stuff in the way up here. So I'm going to have to stop telling myself, oh, I don't have time to make this appointment. Stop telling myself, you know, oh, what if they try to give me medicine and then that means I'm crazy? Like, I just had to like, let all of that stuff go and say, what do I need to be successful? Okay, I'm going to go do that thing. And it sounds really simple but I had a lot of stuff in the way. And once I did get around all the stuff that was in the way, again, that's when I, I turned a corner. And by turn a corner, I mean, I had the longest tenure that I'd had at any job before then, ended up staying for two years at this role. I had more success in, that, in, in a sales role than I had ever had previously. Um, and it was because I was able to just, without all that stuff in the way, all that emotional baggage and, and mental baggage, to, I, want to go back. I want to go back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to push on this because you sort of described what you felt like and then you described, oh, look what happened when I took care of it. So <laughs> one thing was you finally had to go, okay, I got to do, you, you finally had the realization of I need to make an appointment or I need to do X, mm -hmm. right? Was there something that led up to that? Was there a moment that, that just sort of hit you and you're like, okay, I'm tired of this shit. All right, Richard, Jesse, Raphael, I will answer your question. 
Is that a Sally Jesse Raphael reference? Definitely. I am a woman yeah. born in 1981. Zero shame about it. I was only, there. Only those of us uh, in our late 30s to mid 50s know this reference. Everybody <laughs> if you else. You know, you know. Everybody uh, else is currently Googling Sally Jesse Raphael. <laughs> So the experience was, and I, I only wrote about this very recently, but I was, I'd call into work one day and I was supposed to go pick my son up from school or get him from the bus stop at, you know, 2.45 in the afternoon. And I didn't. And I didn't realize that I'd lost the whole day just in bed like being depressed right and until my son walked in the door wondering why i hadn't been there and <laughs> that just really i couldn't lie to myself anymore I'm looking this child in the face and incapable of bullshitting him anymore. You know, this is the same kid that lived with me through me saying no to the 50 cent ice cream cones, right? This is the same person who every day is giving and loving and just existing and did not deserve to be getting me at half capacity. So that day, so what I made an appointment. And what was, and so then that was the next, so you yellow paged it, you called a friend. Like I, I'm trying to give people a chance to- I zocdoc'd it. in that step, right? Cause it's not easy. Right? It's not, it's, it's not. I, I right then and there after, you know, hugging my baby, I got on my phone and I zocdoc'd like where near my job, can I go on my lunch break and talk to someone and figure out what's up with me? because no one's going to do it for me and they, they don't, it's not their job. And it's not his job to come and find his, you know, have to scoop his mom up when he gets off the school bus. It's just not, I wasn't going to do that to him. So Finna, it's a Georgia-ism. But anyway. I'm sorry you had to go through that and I'm sorry your son had to go through that. Um, I, I, my depression, as I've told my story, is, is me waking up in the bed and, and not being able to move, just frozen. Um, and I did not have children at the time, so I can only, I can't even imagine what it felt like for you. So, um, so I'll sort of pull us out of that story, but thank you for sharing it. And I hope, I hope other people who might be struggling, um, you know, please reach out to folks who, who can help you. Um, I'll plug this nonprofit I work with called uncrush.org. If you don't know where to start and you're just looking for resources, go check it out. There's tons of resources there, but let's. I'll pull us back out of that, but thanks for letting us take the conversation there, Nikki. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about what's on the other side of that. I, I yeah. will say that on the other side of it is not all sunshine and rainbows in perpetuity, right? right. Um, but but there's something to be said for having your eyes open, and there is something to be said for name being able to name the thing and knowing where to go when you need to deal with it. And so once I was able to get to that place, that's again when I started to turn the corner. Um, career-wise, at least in terms of how I felt about myself and what I could achieve. Right, right. What, um, what are some of the challenges you're facing today as you look at yourself and your career? Um, you know, because to your point, it's, you know, we're always a work in progress. We're all trying to do something, but, you know, where do you, where do you see that these days with yourself? I've, I've stopped I won't say stop. I think far less about myself and my own stuff these days. I've got very young, new sales folks, folks who are still in like one of these uh, training boot camps, reaching out to me and telling me that, you know, me talking so openly about, about mental health and about, you know, uh, these issues, these culture issues, right? These inclusion issues is what, encouraged them to go ahead and pursue a sales career or pursue a career in B2B tech while they know that only 7% of the people in B2B tech are black, right? And so, I mean, I, I guess I could 
as a stretch, try and answer the question about, you know, what my struggles are, but I'm just really not in touch with those so much anymore as I am with like this, the, the general problem with inclusion and attracting diverse candidates that B2B tech sales has. But you want me to tell you what my struggles are? I don't know about... So, I mean, it, unconscious bias is the thing that exists and I'm certain that I'm subject to it to this day. When I do engage on a one-to-one -one basis and I feel that there is a friction relative to, you know, my intersection of identities, right? Being black and being a woman. Uh, it's the skepticism that's a rub. That's the rub. It's me telling a story about something that I experienced that, that affected me and having someone look me in the face and say, Oh, that you must have just been around a bunch of ignorant people that doesn't right. happen and that wasn't mine it's, it's, it's people trying to invalidate your feelings and your experience yes they're either doing that or they're centering themselves yeah. right like i'm talking about natural hair and then there's some you know blonde girl that's like oh i have curly hair too it can be such a problem with the humidity like sis we're not having the same conversation Sis, it's not the same. Like your hair is not illegal in, in, in most of the states in the union right now. Like that's, we're not. How, not do you, how do you choose which battles to fight and which posts to engage and which ones to leave? I mean, we were, we were sort of chatting about this in a totally different context earlier yeah. when I was explaining like, I just, I can't be bothered to argue with this. Totally different context. But for you, right? Like, you could spend all damn day in these kind of arguments and get sucked into that. And like, I don't know, is the experience liberating? Is it infuriating? How do you decide when to engage and when to say, fuck this, I'm out of here. Like, I can't handle this anymore. I only just had my first fuck this moment this past weekend. Because usually... Meaning you've been just going in all the it, time. I want all the smoke. Meaning <laughs> if I... <laughs> That, that might be the title of this episode. Uh, yeah, Nikki Ivy wants all the smoke. Hey, put it out there. But I mean, no, my so. First, my first fuck you moment. <laughs> so, so typically, I, I see these, I experience these as teaching moments. And it is really difficult for me to pass on the opportunity to tell someone what they need to know. But as the climate in this country has it has started to become more intense with respect to these issues and the volume of these conversations has exploded. It's just, it's, it's too much for one person to keep up yeah, with. I mean, so yeah, you, you're going to, I worry that one could end up giving so much of themselves away mm -hmm. piece by piece all day long, week after week that eventually you, you got nothing left to give and, and you're yeah. going to, you know, kind of collapse under the the weight of it all you know that's yeah, why it's why it's important to have other like projects where i can feel like i'm addressing these things on a larger scale on a regular basis and so there's not this thing in the back of my mind that says if i don't stop right now and check this person then the whole thing's gonna fall apart i feel less like that's a possibility if i am um you know like i said engaging in in, in projects and communities where i'm actually doing the work um, so that's one way that I decide. Another way is just straight up my husband slapping my phone out of my hand, which he enjoys doing. It gives him lots of joy <laughs> to be like, get off your phone. Because if it were left up to me, yeah, I'd be doing this all the time. Um, but what led me to this most recent like turning point fuck you moment was I had posted about my daughter graduating high school as val valedictorian. Oh, yeah, congrats. Graduate Thank you. She graduated a year early. She's only 17. She, she put herself through like virtual school before it was a thing, right? So not the whole distance learning that people were having for COVID. She'd been doing that since January because when we moved from Texas to Florida, uh, we moved to this particular town because uh, it's the best, is touted as the best high school in uh, the state, in the district. It, in, so that's why we wanted her to go there, but she goes there and it's not very diverse and they were actively harassing her uh, with respect to race. The N-word was said on a regular basis to my child. Uh, the counselor refused to sign her up for the full course load of AP classes, although that, that's what she was transferring from. 
Um, so there were, there was a lot of little stuff going on and, and Jasmine, my daughter was just like, nah, I actually don't want to deal with this. This is not my, fi I'm not you mom. She said to me, right. I don't, I'm not going to stay here and like have my whole experience be characterized by daily fighting these issues. So she removes herself from the environment finishes, figures, figures out what needs to happen for her to graduate school as quickly as possible, does so and does so at the top of her class. Anyway, so I'm filled with pride this weekend as we were celebrating her graduation. I post about it. I use the phrase black excellence, thinking that it doesn't need to be explained. Somebody in the comments, somebody in the comments was like, and this is a really great accomplishment for her, but what's the difference why how is black excellence any different than just excellence and i had i was any other day scott richard any other day like i would have let her have it i would have bullet pointed I've, I've gotten very good at like giving people these very concise bullet pointed answers to why they're wrong but this time i just i didn't even i didn't say anything i just literally thought the phrase you know what Fuck her, <laughs> and I just went about my day. The day was too special. That, she was, you, she was not going to get it. Do you find, yeah? Did you find that experience healthier and more restorative for you? Especially because it involved my daughter and her day. Now, I do think that if it hadn't been um, for that occasion, and it hadn't, been, and I hadn't already decided that I was going to be focused just on her and just on positivity, then I might have still told this woman you know, where to go. Cause I got the article links on deck as far as how black excellence is different from white excellence. What I'll tell you straight up in case anybody watching is wondering is because it's very well documented that what I might have to do to achieve excellence, the path to that, there's a few more barriers on it than a lot of other groups. So for me to achieve and be sitting at the same table as you is not the same because we did not, in theory, in general, have to be up against the same roadblocks. I'm thinking this is something that's very simple, that is self-evident, but I could have gave it to her, but I didn't. So, what, so, so and, and feel free to go off on a rant, and I can't believe we're all, I mean, this is a fascinating conversation. I could go don't on. Encourage, no. Nikki, don't encourage Nick to go off on a rant. Okay? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but but try, to, try to do it, try to, you know, a concise well, rant. You know what? You be Nikki. I don't need to tell you what to do. That's terrible of me. Shame on me. What What does black excellence mean other than I had, you know, the table is set differently for me. Like in this instance of a high school, a child, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Having to deal with this bullshit, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the obvious one is, oh, they wouldn't put her in the AP classes, even though she came from there. But what's some of the, you know, what are some of the other things that, that occur because I think, I mean, people just don't know. So yeah. go, you got the mic. Yeah. So, and we see this in, in work environments as well, where there are just sort of social, social cues that point to in group, out group. I'm sorry. That point to, you know, this is the type of person that belongs in this environment. And this is the type of person that does not. What are those cues? <sighs> well, don't censor yourself. I can see people are just listening. They're missing out because there's the, the cues are, the cues are political and I don't want to alienate anyone, but Why I can tell they're you they're alienating you. But is, is it as simple as like, you know, who sits together at lunch if there's in office lunch? Is it as simple as which people take a stroll around the block together to stretch their legs? Or it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's more subtle than that. It's about simple things like. So in a work environment, something like, you know, are you going to do the fantasy football league this year? And it's a year when Colin Kaepernick's been kneeling and trying to tell people about police brutality with every, you know, fiber of his being and no one's paying attention, but I'm paying attention. And so at the point in time when I get asked about the fantasy football league at work, I haven't watched an NFL football game in three years. And now I'm not mad with you, but now I have to be confronted with the fact that I am literally surrounded by people 
who have the luxury and the privilege to treat that as just football uh, or for it to not infiltrate all these different parts of their life. But for me, there really isn't a single thing that race hasn't touched. So the cues are, are more obvious for me. And in the, in here, living here in Florida, in the town that I live in, yeah, I live on a street where all the flags are Trump flags. I live on a street where that's the case. And that is a social cue. That, is, that does point to an in-group, out-group type of thing. And it goes way beyond just what you believe about political policy. It goes, it goes to the espoused and stated beliefs of the person being supported. And if I am walking through that neighborhood every day and trying desperately to feel a sense of belonging there, it's just a stretch. And if I know that that's a stretch for me, then it's definitely a stretch for my kids at school and they've said as much. And so those are the types of cues that I'm, that I'm talking about. But, but, when it, but with respect to black excellence and why it's actually different besides all of the, the barriers that I've mentioned before, it's because it isn't taken as the default. That's the difference. When people see you, Richard, or see you, Scott, they do see you as an individual first. And even if you fuck up really, really bad, they are not as likely to take your bad behavior or your failures as representative of the race or gender that you come from, not generally speaking. And because of that, because that dynamic is flipped for me, there's this added level of pressure. So, and this plays out, uh, played out a lot in work environments, it, especially being the only black woman. I felt very often, like if I fail, they're not going to hire another black woman or it's gonna be much harder for her because they're gonna see her as more of a risk. And I do have in my past places where I work that haven't hired another black woman in, in the sales role since. And, 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 and living and trying to work with that added pressure is a hell of a burden mm -hmm. when you're entering a new org or you're trying to learn the industry and the product and close your first deal and all this kind of stuff, right? And then you're sitting right. there thinking, well, I'm the only black person in this entire sales org, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, that's, that's what it comes down to is, and you see me say this a lot, I say you, but folks who follow my Instagram see me say a lot that, you know, black excellence is the rule and not the exception. I say that out loud to anyone who will listen because I have not been treated like that's the case. I have been told to my face in no uncertain terms that, well, you're not like other black people. I mean, yes, I am though. I'm a lot like them and they're a lot like me and I want you to see them when you see me. Straight up, good and bad, all of it. So, what it flipping it on the other on the other side, and, and we could go back to you know the the conversation about hair because you know I love talking about hair in general. Um, so, what what can we do better? What advice can you give us? Um, because you know, in some instances, it's it's blatant ignorance. Some instances, it's probably ignorance, and we kind of know, but we think we're allowed to say it anyway, right? how can we be better? Because I think that's a part of this conversation too, right? Is like, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to own the bullshit. I think I even probably, I think I did it in a question with you. Where I tried to sort of pigeonhole you in a certain way and I caught myself. How do we be better as humans? A lot of this and in, in terms of allyship, being able to be an effective ally, being able to, you know, be effective in making progress and advocating for groups with which, you know, to which I don't have the same identity. I learn from what I practice in my relationship with members of the LGBTQ community. And I do and say clumsy shit in that relationship all the time, all the time. But I don't stop. I don't let you know, this fear that I will say something wrong, keep me from pursuing those relationships. And then what I do on the back end to try and make sure that I say fewer clumsy things is I watch documentaries. I make sure that I'm consuming content that not only features, but is created by folks who are of this identity 
that I need to have more understanding on. You know, my, my 14 year old, she, Savannah, turned 14 in April on her 14th birthday, she came out as lesbian. And then in an instant, all the dumb things that I've ever said or not said came rushing to me. And I almost, my instinct was to make her the gay people representative at my household and ask her hashtag all the gay questions. But she was very, very, in a way that I'm super proud of, she was very intentional about being like, you know what, I'm gonna point you to this documentary I'm going to point you to this YouTube video, and then we can discuss it. And I'm seeing a lot of parallels in, in how I'm doing that and what I'm asking of people uh, in allyship with respect to, to race. I think, I, think, I, think, I think, Richard, I think part of what it is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Nikki, but like part of what it is is um, it's like, hi, Nikki, I would like for you to take this burden of my lack of understanding and please mm -hmm. be the one to teach me. Mm -hmm. Instead of, I don't know shit, I better go educate myself. And once I'm educated, then I'll come to the table and have a conversation. So it's like, yeah, I don't want to do I don't want to do the long work. The short work would just be, can you just tell me what I need to do? But I have empathy for that. And it's yeah. because of the experiences that I've had right in, in my allyship. And so I don't often count people out as quickly. Right now, now y'all all saw me on the Thursday night sales and on your Patreon, uh, Scott, where in the, in the weeks directly following yeah. the death of George Floyd, when the emotions were still very raw for me, mm -hmm. yeah, I was out here like, burn it all down. I try to coddle these white people. Uh, and I'm still not trying to coddle anybody. I just feel less like burning things down. <laughs> but I do have, I do, because, because my, the outcome that I want, involves all of us i have to make sure that i'm making room and inviting all of us to participate on the way there and you got to stay focused on the outcome and which is you know the goal yeah, and exactly that and not the little nuanced squabbles about you know how and, and who and all this stupid stuff richard you're on mute again <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for going down that route. I think I do that to Scott's point is I keep saying, well, tell me what I need to do better. And, and I'm sort of asking you to fix me when I need to go and sort of heal myself and figure out what I need to do better. Right. And you I could think, though, you could go to I, M-Train's website. And find... I have a but I have a relationship with you. Like I have a relationship yes. with Nikki where I feel like I could be comfortable and say, okay, Nikki, I'm really fucking clumsy here. Like educate me. Right. Um, and I do want to, I, I, I do, I don't mind at all being that for people because I do understand that a lot of the people are coming to me in particular because they feel comfortable doing so. So the last thing I want to do is, you know, turn those folks away with hostility. Right. I mean, I, I, I feel able to hold them accountable and be helpful at the same time. Yeah. So, so let's, let's assume everybody listening is your friend and, and let's say they bring up a clumsy conversation. Right. About hair, about, um, you know, maybe where you live, what block you're in or, you know, oh, you only got the job because of this or what, whatever these stupid things are that that I think a lot of white people say. Mm -hmm. um, how can you what advice can you give to us to say, hey, guys, a it's OK to be clumsy. Just admit it when it happens. Um, like what is something someone could take away who does want to try and get better at this mm -hmm. and, and learn from it? Like, I wasn't kidding. I do. I did just start at this, this job M train. One of the reasons why I decided to take this role is because the resources that they produce around just this type of thing, they're micro lessons on how to have these conversations. And they're not, they, it takes a lot of pressure off because it's you, your computer, and this little video of a situation that's a lot like what you and I described, right? It's right. about hair or about race or about age or gender or any of those things. So I will point folks to resources that experts have produced because I have a lot of experience, but I do not have certification in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and so I would, I would do that. But if when these things come up and it is a person that I have a relationship with, then I just listen I, I i deploy sales skills is what i do right i listen to understand and then i repeat it to make sure that they are saying what i thought that they were saying 
And then we talk about why they would say that, what they meant and where they're trying to get to. And is there room for us to get there together? I fought, and this is one of the reasons why I was so frustrated with salespeople um, in the very beginning of this new awakening that we're in right now is because these are skills that we are using or supposedly using every day to understand people. And it really shouldn't be that difficult. So that, that's what I would tell folks who come to me for help. Like, hey, we can have this conversation, but I need you to treat it like that. Like this is a discovery and this is not you, you know, having me rehash my trauma for, to absolve you. Like we can't, it can't be that. So we're unfortunately out of, out of time here, Nikki, but we like to end every show saying, what can we do for you? How can we be helpful? Um, is there anything that you're working on that you want to kind of pump, promote, whatever, right? So what, yeah. can, we do, what can we do to, to try to uh, support you? So like I said, I just started at M-Train. The work that I'm, it is a culture, a workplace culture platform. So the work that I'm doing is directly related to this conversation and the values that I have in, in the DE&I space. Um, and I work with enterprise and big business clients. So if you know of someone who was trying to get beyond just compliance, beyond just like, did we check this box? Mm -hmm. Right. And are we building a, a culture around like why that those compliance issues even come up? Like why is it it's important? Please do point them in my direction. I'd like to help those folks. Uh, also with SDR Defenders, we are producing content that is intended to help SDRs level up, yes, but to just stand in direct opposition to a lot of the content that's out there, that not just the bad advice, but the stuff that is very hierarchical, right, About, and, and treats SDRs like they shouldn't have a voice, treats them like, you know, they're order takers or appointment setters. Um, so point folks if you, who you know who are new or who are leading those types of teams to sdrdefenders.com. We've got some really exciting stuff coming out. The thing I'm most excited about that nobody else knows about, it's exclusive, is the hotline where folks, SDRs, can call on a hotline and ask any time of day or night and ask these questions over voicemail. And then either through our LinkedIn posts, our content explicitly, or our webinars, we'll be answering those questions so. very cool that's that. really sweet. great well congrats on the the new role and the the project uh, i i am excited to see how it goes i love that you've married these two passions of yours together and uh you know wish you the best of luck with everything and thanks so much for spending some time with us thank you so much scott i've been really excited for this so and thank you too, Richard. really appreciate it thanks guys